0: This is Dr. Matthew Rowe from the Duke Clinical Research Institute, and I'm pleased to be here today with my colleague, Dr. Deepak Bhatt, from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and today we'll be talking about um, considerations for assessing the quality and impact of open-label comparative effectiveness trials for cardiometabolic drugs. So, Deepak, thank you for joining us today for this podcast. Uh, I think there's clearly a lot of interest in uh, the cardiovascular community of uh, comparative effectiveness trials to look at uh, drugs within the same class of important medications that recently have been shown to have great benefit for our patients, such as diuretics, uh, antiplated agents, lipid agents, SGLT2 inhibitors, and others. And so thinking about this in general uh, and the fact that most of these studies are not typically funded uh, by the pharmaceutical industry and typically funded by investigators or government funding What do you feel is the unmet need, and uh, what type of framework should we we be thinking about when we consider these types of trials?
1: Well, this is really a great question that you've posed, and an extremely important one, given that there's a lot of new drugs, and though not today's topic, even devices like mechanical support, but you mentioned drugs like the SGLT2 inhibitors, NOACs, antiplatelets, where there's several drugs in a class, several trials showing each individual drug is highly effective, but then uncertainty about which is the best one to use for patient care. And part of it is just figuring out what's the best. But part of it is because at any given time, there might be differing costs. One drug in a class may go generic first. That's often the case. And then it's a matter of two different drugs that look great, but then which one do you use in actual practice? One might be a little bit better. Okay, maybe there's not so much of a difference that's inferred pick whichever one you like but then one goes generic and then it becomes much more pressing is the cheaper one as good as the one that is more expensive. So these questions have come up a lot lately and are going to come up even more in the future. So we've got to figure out some way of doing trials efficiently, effectively to answer these questions and in ways that are scientifically robust but also that are relatively inexpensive because... It's unlikely that companies that make a drug or a device are going to do a head-to-head trial against their competitor, especially if their competitor at that point in time is cheaper. It's really a lose-lose proposition from a business perspective. So I think the onus will fall on us as academicians and as physicians in practice to answer these questions as best we can. But that poses the challenge. How can we do it well if we don't have an infrastructure to do it or a budget to really do it right?
0: So in that regard, and we think about the expectations for quality assessment of these studies, uh, we recognize they likely will be open label studies just for cost considerations. But when we think about are the trials adequately sized and do they have adequate power? um, What is the expectation for treatment, adherence, and compliance for the randomized participants? And then how do we follow uh, uh, for endpoint ascertainment and confirmation? And then what type of um, expectations do we have for loss to follow-up compared with the, the rigidly um, assessed uh, regulatory uh, implied trials. So what do you think in that regard? What should we be expecting as scientists and, and academicians, as you d- describe, when we um, are looking at these trials, planning them, and then actually interpreting the results?
1: It's a tough question. It really depends what our goal is, whether our goal is good or good enough for purposes of regulatory approval, especially for drugs, more so than devices. Devices, it's pretty easy to get things approved. But drugs, it's actually quite rigorous in the U.S., and there the standards are quite high in terms of data completeness, degree of follow-up, missing data, and the standards have gotten really tough over the past few years in terms of tolerance for missing data with very little tolerance by regulatory agencies. So. You know, there, the types of trials that are done tend to be really expensive. There's extensive data and safety collection looking for rare side effects or signals. That's very expensive and wouldn't be practical to test the many questions that are out there. So I think if we're willing to accept it, there may need to be two standards of evidence. One would be the really high bar, say, to clear a new drug that's a novel mechanism of action, might have some weird, infrequent, unknown side effects. There, probably you want a large, long-term trial with excellent data capture and perhaps some degree of the onerous adverse event reporting that we all hate. But then for the more common questions, I think we can't hold trials to that standard because that's an expensive trial. And again, if industry is not funding it, the system, whether it's a government or investigator-initiated trials just don't have that type of money these days. Maybe they never did.
0: And in that regard, uh, you know, one of the key questions is, do we need randomization or can we look at comparative effectiveness studies uh, that are in practice more from an observational manner?
1: I think, you know, any data is usually better than no data. Uh, Sometimes that's not true. If it's particularly a poorly done study, it can backfire with misleading results. But uh, given the choice, I think randomization is preferable. I think lack of randomization for sure will, whatever the results are, leave it open to criticism. And a lot of times that criticism is legitimate. That is, there's all sorts of biases that can creep in and confounders and no amount of matching or propensity matching can completely eliminate that sometimes it's the best we can do. That just recently happened, for example, with a comparison of various mechanical support devices where industry's unwilling to fund any type of randomized data that's meaningful today. But in terms of, you know, what you're really focused on, the cardiometabolic space, there I think there's enough patients, there's enough different combos to test, there's enough clinical equipoise for many questions that it should be fine and easy to randomize. And by easy, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, it's never that easy to randomize, but, but we could try to make it easier. And in fact, I think we have to in this country. Otherwise, other regions of the world, I'm thinking of the Swedes, you know, are already doing this type of randomization within their registries. So, you know, we need to catch up quickly or we will lose our preeminence by we, I mean, the United States uh, on the global stage in terms of clinical research. So, you know, I think these sorts of Simple randomized trials are really essential.
0: And so, looking at a use case, uh, and then for a study that recently completed, and then other studies that are ongoing, specifically with respect to the U.S. perspective, like you described, there's been a lot of um, controversy about the ISAR REACT 5 study that was published um, recently and presented at the ESC meeting a few months ago, uh, conducted in Germany by the ISAR group, evaluating. Prazagril versus Ticagrelor as oral P2Y12 inhibitors for the treatment of patients with acute coronary syndromes. So in that fashion, what do you think about this study and what type of lessons have we learned um, in in terms of the broader context that we're discussing today?
1: Good question. I'm actually not 100% sure what we learned from that study. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sort of way. I mean, I commend the investigators for doing a study that neither of the drug makers was going to do because no one wanted to take a chance of having their drug lose. So when industry is not going to do the studies, and I don't necessarily blame them. Why would you do a study that could only show that your drug is worse? It's. I don't think it's evil or bad on their part. I think it's just that they're a business, and so they're not going to answer every question that a physician in practice might have. But you know, the challenge with that particular study, you know, if it had shown that the two antiplatelets compared were, you know, essentially a similar in performance, that would have fit, I guess, our preconceived notions, and you know, people would have been happy. And you know, one of the drugs is going generic, so use that one. It's pretty simple. But the problem is that the results actually were very unexpected, showing that one antiplatelet was way better than the other one. A degree of margin that really exceeds what, even if it had been a placebo controlled trial, would have been observed. So it was really hard to understand. Now, that's the problem. It it, it makes it have been uninterpretable. And one drug's cheaper, so you might end that drug once, you might just say, great, that's a terrific answer. And that's an easy interpretation, but the other drug that lost was shown to have a mortality benefit in a separate, properly done, randomized clinical trial. So that creates a real tension for the physician. Should I believe this trial, which, you know, gives a result that makes life easier in some respects, use the cheaper generic? Or should I, you know, fight to use the more expensive one that looked inferior in this trial, but that other really rigorously done trials or, or another rigorously done trial showed a mortality benefit? It, it creates a real tension in terms of what the right thing to do is for the physician. And the trial is just hard to interpret. I'd almost go as far as to say uninterpretable because I don't know why there's this massive benefit unexpectedly seen for one drug versus the other. Could it be some sort of bias on the part of the investigators? Possibly, but I'm not really sure what systematic bias there would be. But that's the problem with open-label trials. You can't ever figure out if there is some sort of bias. And there's usually biases going in both directions, and it's hard to know if one predominates and, you know, there were issues in terms of differential rates of adherence and patients coming off study drug at different time. You know, was that the reason? Well, if that's the reason, that might be legitimate. I mean, that's sort of a clinical effectiveness study because if in real life one of the drugs isn't as well tolerated, patients really aren't as adherent because of side effects, then that's kind of legitimate, actually. Uh, to count uh, against that drug, but here it could be this, it could be that, it could be a little of this and a little of that, so at the end of the day, I haven't changed my practice, so I'm stuck using the more expensive drug, but, you know, third-party payers are calling the office and saying, why are you doing that, you know, so uh, it has created a bit of a headache, uh, and I'm not sure uh, that it has really been informative.
0: Sure, and I think, you know, we recognize that that trial enrolled about 4,000 patients, whereas the pivotal studies that led to registration of both prasugrel and ticagrelor compared to clopidogrel enrolled between fifteen to 18,000 patients. And so you have to expect that the power to really uh, demonstrate uh, a difference between the two drugs was really um, diluted in a trial that was about the fourth the size of the pivotal studies.
1: Yeah, I agree, especially because we're talking about a head-to-head versus placebo-controlled. So, you know, that's the problem. But I think that's what, in general, will happen with investigator-initiated studies because, I mean, I get it. I've been in that situation. You have a limited budget, limited infrastructure. You can't pay sites well or maybe at all. So you do what you can do. But then oftentimes it's an underpowered study. Uh, It's open-label. There are all sorts of biases that might or might not creep in. And at the end of the day you can't really be sure what you have other than a confirmation bias. Uh, That is, it basically will show whatever the interpreter wants it to see. So I continue to believe that the antiplatelet that I already thought was better is better. And other people who thought opposite or thought that they were the same will now feel justified. So, you know, that's why I think it really, those sorts of trials have the potential to be a lot of effort, some amount of money, but not change practice. And again, it's not that it's, you know, that it was poorly done. It was as well done as one could given the constraints of budget and sample size, but um, it then leaves the physician really in a quandary as far as what the right thing to do is.
0: So in that context, we have two studies that are ongoing right now solely in the United States, the adaptable study uh, evaluating low versus high dose aspirin and chronic uh, atherosclerosis and the TRANSFORM study evaluating furosemide versus torsemide in patients with chronic systolic heart failure. Uh, The first is uh, sponsored by PCORI, and the second is sponsored by the NIH. And so I think both of these studies, as they report out in the next year or two, will give us uh, further uh, evidence and further framework on how we assess comparative effectiveness open-label studies evaluating either different doses of the same drug or two drugs within the same class, and also get to the point that you raised, and that is that we're falling behind in the United States. And so uh, I think as we think about where we are in 2019 and where we'll be in one to two years from now, these considerations are very important. And so, on the last point, from your perspective, Deepak, how should practice guidelines committees from the professional societies evaluate these studies?
1: It's a great question. I think you can't necessarily implement them the same way that you would, you know, a, a regulatory grade trial. But I also think it depends on the question, and I hate to say it, but I think it depends on the results and, you know, how much sense they make in a Bayesian approach. That is, does it fit in with everything else? Does it biologically make sense? So, you know, prasugrel versus ticagrelor the study we were just discussing, why would prasugrel be so much better than ticagrelor? I mean, they basically provide similar degrees of antiplatelet effect. So, you know, it would be easy to believe that they're both similar if you believe the Plato mortality reduction, as I do, then why not think that Ticaglor might be better? But it would be odd and unexpected to think prasugrel would be so much better than ticaglore. Though it's once a day instead of twice a day, it doesn't have dyspnea as a side effect. So it's not inconceivable. But then the large margin of benefit that was seen, that seemed implausible. So, you know, it's a different story with adaptable. You know, there it's two different doses of aspirin. And I'm not sure right now that there's so much bias in the way that a physician would implement it. Again, open label, there could be. That's the challenge. But but to me there, I guess I'd be happy with whichever one wins, uh, just because I don't really see investigators or patients uh, being biased. I mean, there's real equipoise there. I don't think there's passion there in terms of, you know, which dose is the right one, as there is around the prazogrel Ticagrelor question to an extent. Same with the, you know, torsamide, fibrosamide sort of thing. You know, there, I'm not sure there's... Anyone that's so, so passionate about the topic in terms of investigators or certainly patients, you know, so again, bias can creep in in any open label study, but it's less likely here. And I think the results, you know, I don't know that anyone has so much of a a conviction that one is better than the other, that I think the results there could be implemented in guidelines. With I saw react 5 I actually wouldn't implement it in guidelines. But I'll be honest, that might in part reflect my own sort of preconceived notions of which things are better than which, you know. And that then comes back to the problem, even for guideline writers, um you know, getting over any intellectual biases they may have. I'm, I'm less worried about uh, any sort of uh, perceived financial ones. But, but the intellectual ones, those are often, you know, undisclosed because they're just in people's brains.
0: Certainly. So I think that's a great way to wrap up our conversation today. And as we look at how um, the results of the current studies and the future studies will be interpreted, not only in practice but by the Guidelines Committees, it's an important consideration. So as we wrap up, uh, thank you, Deepak, for your sharing your perspective. I think it's really important. And as we look forward to future studies reporting out and understanding how we can assess the results and look at it with a degree of skepticism, it's really very important to understand the concepts we discussed. So do you have any uh, concluding comments you'd like to make?
1: No, other than, you know, you can always debate the pros and cons of doing more randomized trials, but ultimately I think the pros win. That is, the more that we can do, especially in the U.S., you know, the more we can really uh, step up our game and, and, and try to do more, I think that'll be important, depending on how you look at it, either to solidify or to reclaim our role as the world's leader in randomized clinical trials.
0: Okay, well, thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you, Matt.